Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Now, over the past couple of decades, I've come to pay more and more attention to the church calendar. I've learned that, I mean, I didn't start out knowing this, you know, but I've come to know that the wisdom of our elders is seen in the formation of the church calendar and that there is great benefit found in its observance. Rather than just make up my own calendrical rhythms, I'm leaning into the ancient rhythms of Christianity's great tradition. Now, the next major season in the church calendar is Advent. We're about two months away from that Advent that prepares us for Christmas and then the 12 days of Christmas and then Epiphany. That's what we're looking forward to. I have written uh, an Advent and Christmas devotional. How many of you have read The Unvarnished Jesus, The Lenten? Oh, this is the companion piece to that. Uh, and so this is like that. It's 42 meditations. It begins on Sunday, November this year. It begins on the first Sunday of Advent this year. That's November 27th. And it takes you all the way to January 6th. It's, it's just like, you know, three pages a day. And it's designed to... To, to create that yearning, that it's called the anticipated Christ. And the idea is that we are waiting with Isaiah and all the prophets for the promised one to come. And so it helps us prepare for Christmas. And then once we get to Christmas, uh, there's all those stories that surround the birth of Christ. And those are the meditations in this. Um, this I'm, I'm, I'm telling people it's available Monday, but actually it's available now. If you want to get it online, if you want to get it online, it's available now. Uh, but if you want to just, if you're here and if you just want to wait and pick up one here, they'll be here in a couple of weeks. It doesn't matter. You don't need to start reading it now because what you want to do is take it one day at a time, beginning with the first Sunday of Advent at the end of November. So I wanted you to know about that. I'm excited about that. Uh, the next holy day in the Western church calendar is this Thursday, this Thursday. It's the feast day of St. Michael the Archangel. And so I've got a, yeah, there we go. It's, doesn't that just inspire you? Don't you just love that one there? This, so the next holy day is this Thursday. And it's the feast day for Michael the Archangel. Um, yeah, Michael, this angel, archangel, big angel, important angel, chief angel, uh, shows up. In three books of the Bible. First of all, we see this angel in Daniel, where Michael is presented as the angelic prince of Israel who defends the people of God. And then there's a brief appearance, as we get to the end of the Bible, of Michael, the archangel in the book of Jude, where it alludes to, to Michael's dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. And 
The archangel simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And then the most significant passage, though, concerning Michael, the archangel, is found in Revelation 12. And that's what I want to look at. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Today I want to preach on where there is no war. All right, let's look at this war in heaven. That's what we're presented here in Revelation 12. War broke out in heaven. All right, this is the book of Revelation, so literalists beware. Uh, that is not the way you approach the book of Revelation. You don't literalize these images or you'll get yourself in all kinds of problems. But there is an important message here. With the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, I didn't read that. That's referred to a couple of verses earlier in verse 5. It speaks of the woman who bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. With the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, heaven or the heavens are transformed. God's agency of salvation has cast down the devil and all evil intentions. And so the picture is of a war in heaven, Michael and the angels of the Lord at war with the dragon and his angels. And the dragon loses. Hallelujah. And we're given the name of the dragon. The dragon is devil. Diabolos, Greek, meaning accuser. Satan, Hebrew, Satan, meaning accuser. And then we're told this is one that accuses the brethren and accuses them before God day and night. This is the chief activity of the satanic is that work of accusation of blame, of incrimination, that sort of thing. But we're told that the saints overcame the accuser by the blood of the lamb because Jesus shed his blood forgiving our sins. They overcame by the word of their testimony. Our great confession is Jesus is Lord. And they love not their lives even to death. This is a reference to martyrdom. We've lost that concept. We think, you know, that that would not be a possibility. But no, no, no. That's always on the table. 
for a Christian. It's what you signed up for in your baptism. You didn't read the small print, did you? That you're signing up for, because you're already buried with Christ. And once you have said, I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ, the devil has nothing to which to, to threaten you. I mean, all the, the worst the devil can do is say, I will put you to death. And we say, okay. Because I'm not afraid of death. Because death now is simply to be with Christ. Amen. And I, so, so this is... Um, this is a look at where there is no war. There's no war in heaven because there was a war and the devil lost and the devil and his angels have been cast out and there's no room for them in heaven anymore. Where is there no war in heaven because the devil and his angels have been cast out. All right. That's a look at where there is no war in the most prophetic book in the Bible. I want to look now at the most pastoral book in the Bible. This would be the book of James. You know, James, James is the brother of the Lord. Half-brother, if you want to say it that way. He's the brother of Jesus. But not only that, James, this is not, I know it's confusing, this is not Peter, James, and John, not that James. This is the James that was the brother of Jesus. And he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, meaning he is the first pastor of the first church. And his epistle is extremely pastoral. I've been a pastor almost 41 years, and, and I know a pastor when I see one. And James is a pastor, and here's a pastoral exhortation from James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Pastor James writes, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, let's, let's look at Pastor James' exhortation to the church. He asks a question. It's, where do wars and fights come from among you? It's a rhetorical question. He wants to give his own answer. Where do wars come from? Pastor James says, and he gives the answer. Do they not come from your desires, for your lusts, your inclination towards idolatry and injustice, your inclination towards that which is destructive, that, that, that bend toward that which is toward the darkness, towards the void, towards it. Where do wars come from? Do they not come from those kind of desires that war in your members, that war with, where do wars come from? They come from within. We carry war, we're, we're at war, we're at war within our own being. We're not, we're not, we don't have integrity. That is, we're not, we're not one, we're not whole. There's something warring within the inside of us and we carry that around and then it comes out. Wars without come from wars within. Within our own soul, within our own heart, we're carrying war and then it spills out all around us. James then says, you lust, that means the desire for that which ultimately is harmful, 
That, it's, it's, it's a perverse desire towards that which ultimately is not good for you. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. There's a, there it is, war again. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You know, you can, you can war to get your way or you can trust God. But you can't do both. You can war to have your way or you can trust God. James earlier tells us every good gift, every perfect thing comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. God has good things for you. And you can just trust God. And you say, yeah, but, but what I want, God won't give me. And James says, okay, let's talk about that. Verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. You're asking for the wrong things that you may spend it on your your pleasures, your lusts. You're wanting the wrong thing, Putin. <laughs> I just, I couldn't help myself. I didn't even try to help myself, actually. And then he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Strong language. Why? Because we're betrothed to Christ. Come on, we're married to Christ. We are the bride. He's the groom. We're married to Jesus. We can't have an affair with the world. We have an affair with the world. We, we're adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, we have to talk about that part. James' condemnation of friendship with the world must be understood correctly. You can misunderstand that and it sends you down a wrong path. You can become sort of a world-denying, legalistic, fundamentalist curmudgeon, and we don't want that. It doesn't mean that we don't have a friendly disposition towards humanity and God's good creation. Of course we do. Friendship with the world does not mean that we don't, I mean, James condemning friendship with the world does not mean that we don't have a friendly disposition toward the rest of humanity and towards life in this beautiful creation that is the gift of God. Rather, it means to have an alliance with the world built by the Satan through Cain. The world of evil desire that leads to war must not be befriended. We're talking about the world as it is. You know the world as it is? The world, the world with its history and where it came from. It comes from Cain. You know this story. Cain had the wrong desires and God warned. He says, oh, sin is lying at your door. It's desires for you. Come on, you've got to overcome it. But he didn't. And he killed his brother. He lied to himself and God about it. He said, ah, oh, I'm not my brother's caretaker, am I? Certainly not. Yeah, you are. And then he moves east of Eden and builds the first city. It's, it's building the world upon the ways of war. That Cain wanted what wasn't his, so he killed his brother and took it and then moved east of Eden and built a city upon that foundation. That's the world that you cannot befriend. 
You can't say, I, I like that way of doing things. All you have to do is win in life. Just win. Just go out there and win or take all. That's the world's way. Come on now. Life is not a game. Life is a gift. The purpose of life is not to win, but to learn to love well. But if you say, no, I love the world of war and conquest and winner take all, then you've become a friend of the world. And what you've done is you've made yourself an enemy of God. God is not your enemy. I want to have a break here. God is not your enemy. God is not your enemy. But you can become an enemy of God when you embrace the way of war. Because the God who is God, the living God, the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ is the God of Shalom who is bringing into the world through his son, the Prince of Peace, the way of peace. And if you say, well, I'm going to go the way of war, then guess what? You make yourself an enemy of God because God is the way of peace, the way of Shalom. When we war, we fight against the peace that God brings into the world through Christ. All right. We've heard from... John, the prophet of Patmos. We've heard from James, the pastor of Jerusalem. Now let's hear from Paul, the theologian. He says in Colossians chapter three, verse one, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul's sophisticated theological understanding of salvation is that in baptism, we participate, we are incorporated, we are identified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. He is our life. You can say it another way, and Paul does this in the book of 1 Corinthians, that Christ is the new Adam of the new humanity. The new, we're, no, we're no longer connected with the old Adam that leads to death. We're connected to the new Adam that leads to life. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all are made alive. But Paul, he's even more daring in his theology. He says, not only have we died with Christ and risen with Christ, he also says, we've ascended with Christ. In Ephesians chapter two, I think it's verse six, he says that, that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ, that we've ascended with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, last well, the last Sunday I was here, I said last Sunday, the last Sunday I was here, I preached on how the truth comes from above. I don't know if you remember that. If you don't remember that, just pretend like you do. Make me feel good. I preached on how the truth comes from above. I, I preached that the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. This sermon is a continuation of that. It looks like it's a series maybe. Who knows what we'll do next Sunday? We'll see. So the truth comes from above and Jesus is above. And what I'm doing, I'm calling us to be above. To, let's, let's use this language. We need to be above it all. Down here is where the wars are. The vitriol, the anger, the hate, 
the recrimination, the accusation. We join in league with the accuser of the brethren, the dragon, the devil, the Satan, and it's war and that's accusation. And I want mine, I'm going to win. But we need to be above that. Not drawn into that, but above, why? Because our life, because we've died to that. We're dead to that. That's not who we are. We've died, we've been buried. We're so dead, we've been buried. And our life is Christ. We've been, we're, our life is Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Not only have we died with Christ and been raised with Christ, we have ascended with Christ to be above it all. Where there is no war is in heaven where Christ reigns supreme. In the world above the world to come, the war is already won. The devil has been cast down and no longer has any place in heaven above. Heaven is the place where there is no war. So keep your head in heaven above. Lots of wars. I mean, there are literal wars, but there's also all of these ideological wars, culture wars, social media wars, Twitter wars, Facebook wars. That's if you stay down below. If you stay down here, that's what you have. That's where you live. That's what it's going to be. Come up higher. Get above. Get above. Up in the heavens. Where there is no war. Why? Because the war's already been fought and already won. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The devil and his angels have been cast out. There's no room for them. They're gone. Come up above. Don't be afraid to embrace the dominant dualities of the New Testament. Dualities like above and below. Heaven and earth, light and darkness, spirit, flesh. These kind of dualities are prolific throughout the New Testament. I've seen there's a trend for some people to want to not acknowledge that there are dualities. There are pronounced, stark dualities that proliferate throughout the New Testament. It is the kind of New Testament language. Above and below, heaven and earth, light and darkness, spirit and flesh. So that's why we are exhorted in the New Testament to set our mind on things above, to think on heavenly things, to live in the light, to walk in the spirit. It's not dualities that we need to avoid theologically. It's dualism. I'll be a little bit philosophical here. Give me two minutes to, be, to do some philosophy that might help some of you. Dualities are, are just part of the reality. Dualism is a philosophical idea that we have to reject in Christian theology. Dualism says that light and darkness, good and evil, are at the very heart of God's creation. Dualism says that is the nature of reality, that good and evil sort of, they exist, you know, yin and yang. They just sort of exist in, in, in tension, in balance, and it's the way God created it. That's a dualism. Uh, and it's untrue in Christian theology. All that God has created has been created entirely good. 
That's Genesis 1, right? That's the whole point of it. See, Genesis 1, the, really the point is that in the ancient Near East, all creation myths were based in dualism. That all that creation comes from this struggle of good and evil, and out of that comes material matter and creation, and that we are now just stuck with a situation where there will always be good and evil. The revelation of Genesis is the opposite of that. Day one, everything's good. Two, good. Three, good. Four, good. Five, good. Six is very good. And God rested from all of his works. So in Genesis, we learn that creation comes to be through goodness, entirely through goodness. So Christian theology rejects ontological dualism, but with the temporary damage See, let's just understand this, that evil, we have to account for evil for just a moment here. I've said this a lot lately, but I want it to really sink in. Evil is only a privation, a tear, a hole in the fabric of cosmic goodness, of eternal goodness. So a hole in a fabric of goodness, it's, it's a real phenomenon, but it's not a real thing. You understand? A hole, by definition, is no thing. But it is a phenomenon. But it is one that we are promised will be mended. So the cosmos was not created by God as a dualism where, where there must exist both good and evil. No. But with the temporary damage that evil has wrought upon the fabric of goodness, there are temporality, tempor temporal, temporary dualities. Tempor they're temporary. For the time being, we will experience good and evil, heaven and hell, light and darkness, spirit and flesh, above, below. I say temporary because in the age to come, all shall be well and all shall be well. All shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And this is why the devil has great wrath. Why does the devil have, why is the devil mad? Because the devil knows that his time is short. What does that mean? It means the devil is not eternal. The devil doesn't have forever. The devil is locked within that which is temporal, within time, limited. Or as Stanley Hirewas says, the devil has great wrath because he knows he doesn't exist. At least not ontologically, not permanently, not eternally. Nothing evil has eternal existence. That's good news right there, my friends. Evil is a real phenomenon. I don't deny that. But nothing that is evil has eternal existence. It is limited. It is temporal. It will come to an end. Hallelujah. And in heaven above, this is already the reality. In heaven above, this is already the reality. Let me read the text again. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. In a world of war here below, keep your head in heaven above where there is no war. And in talking about above and below, Come on, I'm not talking about GPS coordinates. These are not geographical locations. 
You can't get to the heaven above where there is no war in a space shuttle. This is not geographical in nature. We enter the heaven above where there is no war. Listen now, through the practice of prayer. Through prayer, we ascend into the holy temple of the Lord where there is no war. When I practice morning prayer, I rise into heaven above where there is no war because the devil's not there and the devil's angels are not there. Why? Because they lost the war and got kicked out. So if you say, well, the devil's given me a hard time, well, then just rise up. Enter the temple in heaven. Rise up. Set your mind on things above. Through prayer, rise up. Go into the heavens above where there is no war because there is no devil because the war has already been won. And when you do that, when through the practice of prayer, you enter into heaven above where there is no war, then the peace of heaven where there is no war enters into your soul. You absorb that. You you pick that up. You spend some time in that temple above where there is no war and you, you absorb that peace. And when you have no, no war within, you have no compulsion to engage in wars without. Remember, where do wars come from? They come from within. But if you ascend into the heavens where there is no war and you sit in that place for a while and you sit with Jesus, all of that comes out of you. You know, the angels, they, they drive those, they don't let those demons into heaven. They drive those out of you. And, and, and you... You go forth into your day with no war within. And when you have no war within, you have no compulsion to war without. As a pastor, let me tell you something about, I'm just going to say this, about these culture war Christians. They're very loud. You can think there's more of them than maybe there are. I hope that's the case. They make a lot of noise. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. If you don't know what I mean, God bless you. I will, not, I will not rob you of your innocence. But these culture war Christians, I want to tell you something about them. They don't know how to pray. They don't. And if they do pray, it's with war in their hearts and it doesn't help them at all. People who know how to enter a peaceful heaven in prayer manifest it with a peaceful heart. People who know how to enter a peaceful heaven in prayer manifest it with a peaceful heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the culture warriors. The peacemakers serve God. Culture culture warriors serve the devil. All right. Coming in for a landing. I told you, you know, I've been working on this for three weeks. Got too much stuff. How many of you here today, online, although I won't be able to see you respond online, but how many of you here feel under great stress because of a great battle you are facing. I'm going to see your hand. Okay. How many of you here feel under great stress because of a great battle you are facing? Well, good news. I have a prophetic word for you today. As I come to the conclusion, I'm, going, I'm, I'm bringing this home with a prophetic word for those here and those online who are under great stress because of a great battle you are facing. The word, the word comes from 2 Chronicles 20. 
The context is this. Judah has been invaded by the Moabites, the Edomites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. It's in the time of King Jehoshaphat. So King Jehoshaphat gathers all the people and they go into the temple and they pray. That's a good idea. You're facing a great battle. Get yourself into the temple and pray. And while they're in the temple praying, there comes a prophetic word. A prophet brings this message. And he said, listen, all of you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Well, that's the, that's the beginning of my prophetic word for you. You're facing a great battle. You're under great stress. Here, the battle's not yours. It's God's. The, the, some of you raise your hand. The battle's not yours. It's God's. Huh. That's a horse of a different color. Oh, it's, it's not my battle. It's not your battle. Whose battle is God's battle? Prophetic word goes on. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Be still and know that I am God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. For the Lord is with you. So the next day, I'm sure it was a Monday. I know it was a Monday. It had to be a Monday. The next day on Monday, after we, they're facing a great battle. They're under great stress. All these enemies are ganged up on them. They're feeling the pressure. They're feeling stressed. So they go to the place to pray. But then they get a prophetic word. Hey, the battle's not yours. The battle's God's. Just, 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 just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. Just stand still and see the salvation of God. And so on Monday morning, they went forth to face the week. There's a great battle out there, but they went forth with this song on their lips. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. They don't have to fight the battle. They didn't have to fight the battle. God, they didn't fight the battle at all, but they won. God fought on their behalf. And all they did was stand around and go, praise the Lord. His mercy endures forever. You're facing a great battle. Here's what I want you to do. Just say, praise the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Yeah, but the bills, praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Yeah, but the diagnosis, praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Yeah, but it's all coming down. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. I'm going to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Praise the Lord, his mercy, his hesed, his loving kindness endures forever. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't need to fight this battle. The battle is not yours, but God's. Keep your head in heaven above where there is no war and put all your trust in the mercy of God. Amen. And now it's time to come to the table of the Lord.
Last Sunday, Perry and I were in London. <clears throat> we were in Scotland when the Queen died in Scotland. We were in London when the Queen was lying in state and then the funeral. We saw, I mean, it was very moving. We saw those lines, queues, they called them. People queuing up for 15, 16, 18, some at some points, 24 hours just to file past the casket of Queen Elizabeth II. It was very moving. I can't imagine something like that in America. Anyway, we were there for that. It's a very historic moment. We were staying at a hotel in central London near Soho. Got up on Sunday morning. We need to go to church. So we just went to the church that was closest to us. You know, Google Maps, search church. All right, there it is. It's 300 feet away. We went to St. George the Martyr Church. It's an Anglican church. It's an old church, and the building exhibits that, you know, stained glass, very lovely. But it has a young, vibrant congregation. And so their church, it was like we're life. There was a mix. It was Anglican liturgy, ancient, but contemporary worship. And so we're there, you know. And uh, there was a couple sitting in front of us, and Perry, being the most more social, you know, you know it's Perry, it's not me, uh, introduces us, you know, she gets us acquainted. And we find out that this couple, they're probably in their 30s, that this is their first time back to church in 20 years. So they, they'd left church in their teen years, you know that can happen. And for the first, I don't know, maybe, maybe it had something to do with the death of the queen, I don't know. For the first time in 20 years, they've come back to church. And we're thinking, oh, that's pretty significant. And they're sitting right in front of us. So the service begins and they have contemporary praise and worship like we do. And then they had announcements like we do. Then they had a sermon like we do. And then they have, in this church, in the Anglican church, they'll have the moment, they call it the passing of the peace. They do this in Catholic churches too. It's really kind of a greeting time, but, but what you do is you just, you go around and you shake hands and you say, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And this couple, they thought that was the end of the service. It kind of felt like it at the end. And so they go, you know, peace be with you, peace be with you. And then they, they, they left. They left the sanctuary. And Perry realized it's not over. So Perry, she's like a missionary. She went out and she, no, no. And she went out, you know, she had to go, come back. It's not, it's not over. The best is yet to come. Brought them back in because there's one more thing. And what's the one more thing? Communion. The body and blood of Jesus. The sacrament of, that communicates the life of Jesus into our own being. Amen. Way to go, Perry. Good job. Give Perry a hand. She's out there to seek and save the lost. And brought them back in. And that's what we're going to do right now is come to the table of the Lord. So stand with me. And everyone will be invited, everyone, everyone, everyone. You come and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts now by first confessing our Christian faith and then we'll confess our sin and receive forgiveness and come to the table. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary.
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to fail and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.